In the last session, we saw Paul say that God the Father rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. His first emphasis was on the work of God the Father, but he ended by explaining the work of God the Son, Christ Jesus. So, in this next section of Paul's letter to the Colossians, the focus shifts exclusively to the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul just finished telling us in the previous verses that spiritual knowledge, wisdom, and understanding is crucial for our own growth toward Christian maturity. So now, Paul proceeds to explain one of the most important things that believers must add to their knowledge— What we will cover today is one of the key passages in all of Scripture that describes who Jesus Christ is and what he does. If believers have a clear understanding of the greatness of Christ, then they will have a firm foundation of spiritual knowledge upon which to build their lives in a way that's pleasing to God. First, we see the greatness of Christ as the image of God. In the first part of verse 15, we see, He is the image of the invisible God. He refers back to the Father's beloved Son, mentioned in verses 13 and 14. He is the same one who redeemed us and provided forgiveness of our sins, and into whose future kingdom believers are going to be welcomed. The subject of our study in this passage is the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. In theological terms, this is the study of Christology. So, take a deep breath and buckle your seatbelt, because the Apostle Paul is going to take us on a deep dive into the theology of Christ in the next few verses of Colossians. We see in Colossians 1, verse 15, that Christ is the image of the invisible God. These few simple words communicate a deep spiritual truth. Just to be clear here, God does not need an image of any kind. God knows perfectly, without any helps or props or object lessons. However, from a human perspective... We do need help in order to see and understand something about the nature and character of God. We require a visual aid, and Jesus is that visual aid which we need. The word image is the Greek word icon. Sounds like our English word icon, which means a visual representation of something. In Greek thought, an image shared in reality what it represents. So the word carries the idea of both representation and manifestation. So why do we need this? As it says here, the reason is because God the Father, by his very nature, is invisible. In John chapter 4, verse 24, Jesus stated that God is spirit. This means that he's not composed of matter and does not have physical substance. Therefore, he is not limited, for example, to a particular geographical location, and his nature can't be destroyed as physical matter can. It's almost impossible for us to grasp this truth about the nature of God, and that's why the Lord Jesus Christ came in human flesh to show us the nature and character of God. One theologian expressed it this way, 
Jesus Christ is our best source of knowledge of deity. We assume that we know what God is really like, but it is in Jesus that God is most fully revealed and known. As John chapter 1 verse 18 says, No one has ever seen God. The only Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, has made him known. So our picture of what deity is like comes primarily through the revelation of God in Jesus Christ. Sometimes we approach the incarnation with an assumption that it is virtually impossible. We think we know what humanity is and what deity is, and they're by definition incompatible. They are the finite and the infinite. But our understanding of human nature has been formed by looking at ourselves and the other humans around us. None of us represents humanity as it came from God's hand. Humanity was spoiled and corrupted by the sin of Adam and Eve. Consequently, we are not true human beings, but impaired, broken-down vestiges of humanity. But when we say that Jesus took on humanity, we are not talking about this kind of humanity. For the humanity of Jesus was not the humanity of sinful human beings, but the humanity possessed by Adam and Eve from their creation and before their fall. He was not merely as human as we are. He was more human than we are. He was, spiritually, the type of humanity that we will possess when we're glorified. The Incarnation involved a bridging of the metaphysical, moral, and spiritual gap between God and man. The bridging of this gap depended upon the unity of deity and humanity within Jesus Christ. If the redemption accomplished on the cross is to avail for mankind, It must be the work of the human Jesus. But if it's to have the infinite value necessary to atone for the sins of all human beings, then it must also be the work of the divine Jesus. Having concluded that Jesus was fully divine and fully human, we still face the issue of the relationship between these two natures in the one person of Jesus. This is one of the most difficult of all theological problems. So we see that Jesus united perfect humanity with perfect deity in a single person. During his time on earth, before his crucifixion, he did not yet have his glorified resurrection body, so he would get hungry and thirsty and weary. He felt pain, and ultimately he would experience physical death on the cross. This was necessary in order for him to pay the price for the sins of the whole world. But the humanity of Jesus was perfect, sinless humanity, which is what humanity was intended to be before sin and the fall entered the world. Jesus embodied complete deity at the same time. So this is how Jesus could be the image of the invisible God. Jesus is the visual aid which we need in order to see and understand what God is like. Next, we see the greatness of Christ as the creator of the universe. In the last part of verse 15, Christ is identified as the firstborn of all creation. This same Jesus, the God-man who has made the invisible God visible to us, is now described in his relationship to the created universe. 
Firstborn is the Greek word prototokos, which means first to come forth. It can indicate either a priority in time or supremacy in rank. It's typically translated as firstborn, and depending on the context, it can relate to physical birth order, as it does in Matthew chapter 1 verse 25 and Luke chapter 2 verse 7. But the context governs the meaning. And here, the context indicates that he is preeminent over all created things. This idea can be traced back to Psalm 89, verse 27, where God declared, I also shall make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. This pictures the Messiah in his role as the coming Davidic king and calls him the firstborn, indicating his authority over all other kings. In relationship to the created universe, then, this tells us that Christ is above or over all that has been created. He has authority and supremacy over everything. So this could be translated, he is preeminent over all creation. Some have tried to use this verse to support the idea that Christ was a created being. But if Paul had wanted to say that, he would have used the Greek word protoktesis, meaning first created. Instead, he gives Christ first place by saying that he is preeminent over all creation. We know that this is the correct idea because in the very next verse, Paul tells us that Christ is the creator. So logically, he himself cannot be part of creation. Colossians 1 verse 16 says, For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. So here Paul gives the reason that he can say Christ is supreme over creation. The word for could be translated because all things were created by him. All things is the Greek phrase tapanta, literally the all. And this was a well-known phrase used by the secular philosophers of Paul's day. So he's saying that when the worldly philosophers use the phrase tapanta, all things, even though they aren't aware of it, they're referring to everything that was created by Christ. What does this include? Christ's dominion over all created things includes the things in heaven and on earth, both visible and invisible. Now, as it says in Genesis 1, verse 1, God created the heavens and the earth, and that expression, heaven and earth, is all-encompassing. So here we see that it was the Lord Jesus Christ who actually accomplished the creation. There are things that are visible, both in the heavens and on earth, but there are also things that are invisible in both arenas. Any created thing that you could possibly think of, and many things that we aren't even aware of, were all created by Christ. Paul next says, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. He includes a set of four words that are typically used to describe rulership or dominion over things either in the heavens or on earth. Thrones, the Greek word thronos, means a seat or chair of authority. It can be used in reference to the seat of both heavenly and earthly dignitaries. Dominions, curiotes, means possessing lordship or ruling authority, 
and it can also reference both heavenly or earthly dominions. Rulers is the word arche, which means the first place, chief, or leader. It can refer to either good or bad authorities, and either heavenly or earthly rulers. And finally, authorities is the word exousia, and it means having the power to rule or govern. It's the authority of privilege or right. And again, this was used to refer to both good and bad, as well as either heavenly or earthly authorities. When looking at this verse, one Bible scholar has said, it's impossible to accurately define the distinctions. So it seems that what Paul is saying here is that no matter what vocabulary words or terminology people may use to describe anything which can have authority over things in the created world, Christ has made them all and is the ultimate or supreme authority over all of them. We will see the Apostle Paul use some of these words later in this letter, as he warns the Colossians to beware of possible errors or false teaching which they may encounter. This verse has three prepositional phrases that encompass Christ's relationship to his creation. These phrases are by him, through him, and for him. The creation was literally in him in the sense that it was his own creative will and design that spawned all the creative activity. It was through him, in the sense that he was the means through which the creation was produced or came into being. It was for him, in the sense that all of creation was intended to serve him and bring glory to him. One Bible commentator provided some of the cultural background for Paul's use of these terms when he said, Paul's use of three different prepositions is one way of refuting the philosophy of false teachers. For centuries, the Greek philosophers had taught that everything needed a primary cause, an instrumental cause, and a final cause. The primary cause is the plan, the instrumental cause is the power, and the final cause is the purpose. When it comes to creation, Jesus Christ is the primary cause. He planned it. He's the instrumental cause. He produced it. And the final cause. He did it for his own pleasure. This reminds me of what Jesus said to the Apostle John, which is recorded at the end of the book of Revelation. He said, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Revelation 22, verse 13 or as the Apostle Paul himself wrote in his letter to the Roman church, for from him and through him and to him are all things, to him be the glory forever. Romans 11 verse 36. Now in verse 17 of Colossians chapter 1, Paul writes, He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So to end this section about Christ's relationship to creation, Paul says that Christ is before all things. He's saying that from the perspective of creation's timeline, God, the Son, Jesus Christ, existed with all the other members of the Trinity from eternity past. He is before all things. As it says in John chapter 1 verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
Paul concludes by saying that all things hold together in him. And this is the Greek word, sunistemi. Christ is literally sustaining and holding the entire universe together. He not only created it, but he maintains its stable state. If he stopped doing this, the entire creation would completely fall apart or revert to nothingness. One Bible commentator writes, Christ is not only the one through whom all things came to be, but also the one by whom they continue to exist. So in this section, we have seen the greatness of Christ as creator and sustainer of the universe. Next, we'll see the greatness of Christ as the head over the church. Paul writes, He is also head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. Since Christ Jesus is before all things and preeminent over all things, then we would logically expect that this idea would also apply to the church. Here in verse 18, when Paul mentions the church, he uses the analogy of a physical body. Now, this is a word picture that Paul had developed previously in his letter to the Corinthian church and then afterward to the church in Rome. His main point in those letters for using this analogy was that the individual members of the church are each indispensable and work together as a unit. So they should use their God-given gifts and abilities to care for one another. And we see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 25. Since Paul is writing this letter to the Colossians several years later, we can see that he expects them to know and understand this previous word picture. As we mentioned in the last session, the Colossians had been taught well about the basic truths of the faith, and this must also include the things that Paul and others had already written to the churches throughout the region. The new information that Paul provides here is that if the church is viewed as a body, then Christ would be the head. This fits perfectly with the context. Since Christ is pictured as supreme or preeminent over everything in the universe, head is the Greek word kephale and can mean the actual physical head of a body as well as figuratively meaning the top or superior chief, the one to whom others are subordinate. Although this is a clever play on words, the context here points to the figurative meaning that Christ is the master or Lord over the church. In his letter to the Ephesian church, which was written at the same time as Colossians, Paul expressed it this way, And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. Ephesians 1 verse 22. So here in Colossians, Paul is also emphasizing Christ's headship or rulership over the church. Paul then says, he is the beginning. The Greek word for beginning is arche, which means the beginning or origin, uh, describing a person or thing that starts or leads something. So in what sense is Christ the beginning of the church? Paul answers this in the following phrase, he is the firstborn from the dead. Firstborn is again the Greek word prototokos, and in this verse, it describes Christ's relationship to the resurrection from the dead. 
So in this context, it's clear that it means the first to come forth, because Jesus was the first person to experience the kind of resurrection which includes a glorified body. How does this relate to the church? Well, the church could not have begun until after Christ's resurrection and ascension, followed by his sending the Holy Spirit to the gathered disciples, as we see in Acts chapter 2, verse 4. After his resurrection, but before his ascension, Jesus gathered the disciples, and he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which, he said, you heard of me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Acts chapter 1 verses 4 and 5. It was necessary for Jesus to go away so that he could send the Holy Spirit to the gathered believers, which we see in John chapter 16 verse 7. And later Paul wrote to the Corinthian church, For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13, and that body is the church. The church had its beginning on the day of Pentecost. So finally, Paul says, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. Christ is preeminent over the church which he began and sustains, just like he is preeminent over all of creation which he originated and sustains. Now, in the following verses, we'll see why Christ has the right to headship over the church. Starting in verse 19, we'll see the greatness of Christ as Savior of the world. Starting in Colossians 1, verse 19, Paul writes, For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. Paul begins by summarizing the important facts about Christ. It was the Father's good pleasure, which is the Greek term eudokeo, for all the fullness to dwell in him. In other words, it seemed good, or it was considered to be right and proper for all the fullness to dwell in Christ. Fullness is the Greek word pleroma, and it's the second time we've seen this idea so far in this letter. Since Christ is preeminent over everything, here Paul explains this by attributing fullness or completeness to him. One Bible commentator described it this way, The fullness denotes the sum total of the divine powers and attributes. In Christ dwelt all the fullness of God as deity. Thus the phrase gathers into a grand climax the previous statements, image of God, firstborn of all creation, creator, the eternally preexistent one, the head of the church, the victor over death, first in all things. Now apparently the secular philosophers had used the word pleroma, fullness, as a technical term to express the sum total of the supernatural powers and attributes that they believed were divided among the members of the spirit world. But Paul counters that false teaching by stating that all the fullness of deity is not spread out in small doses to a group of spirits, but fully dwells in Christ alone. To dwell is the Greek word katoikeo, which means to house permanently. The pleroma, or fullness of deity in Christ, was not a partial or transient thing. It didn't come and go. 
In Christ, the fullness of divine powers and attributes was a permanent aspect of his nature. Beware if someone comes along and tries to persuade you that Christ's deity was not a permanent part of his nature. There's absolutely nothing lacking in Christ or his abilities to work on our behalf. As one Bible scholar said, there's nothing necessary to be done in our salvation which he's not qualified to do. As we saw in verse 15, here Paul reminds us again that Jesus is the God-man who is able to accomplish our salvation, and he describes that in the following verses. Verse 20 says, And through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. To reconcile is the Greek word apakatalasso, which is yet another powerful word describing what Christ accomplished on our behalf. Paul's normal word for reconcile is katalasso, which is an intensified form of the word alasso, which means to change or exchange one thing for another. Kata'alaso was typically used of two people coming together after a time of hostility. So it carried the idea of changing the state of those who were hostile to a state of peace. But in this verse, Paul goes even further by using a double compound word, apakatalaso. The preposition apa on the front of the word has the meaning back and implies a restoration to a previous state from which one of the parties had fallen away. It also includes the idea of the completeness of the reconciliation. One scholar translated it to accomplish a thorough change back. So this is the kind of reconciliation which Christ accomplished for us. One question is, why do we need reconciliation? The answer goes back to the disobedience of our first parents, Adam and Eve. When they sinned, not only were their own lives affected, but their sin was inherited and imputed to the entire race of humanity that followed. As one commentator put it, by their declaration of independence from God, they declared war on God. But God did not declare war on them. As the old saying goes, if God seems distant, who moved? <laughs> it wasn't God. So how can sinful humanity ever be reconciled to a holy God? God's holiness cannot allow him just to lower his standards. But creatures who are sinful by nature can't offer God anything that will appease him. We could never fix our relationship to God. So God had to take the initiative to fix the relationship. The penalty that God had patiently explained to Adam before they sinned in the Garden of Eden must still be paid in full. But God is the only one who has the power to reconcile things to himself, as this verse says. How did Christ do it? Here we see that he made peace through the blood of his cross. The death penalty still had to be satisfied. As one theologian has said, sin requires death for its payment. God does not die. So the Savior must be human in order to be able to die. But the death of an ordinary man would not pay for sin eternally. 
so the Savior must also be God. We must have a God-man Savior, and we do in the Lord. So the Lord Jesus Christ, the God-man, was the only one who could have reconciled us to God. Twice in this verse, Paul used the phrase, through him, in order to emphasize that Christ is the channel or conduit through which we receive reconciliation and peace with God. Paul said that he reconciled all things to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Now, this statement may give the impression that something's not quite right with the universe of created things on earth or in heaven. And while it's true that the fall of mankind did affect creation, as we see in Romans chapter 8, verse 22, we also know from the rest of Scripture that it's only human beings who require reconciliation with God. So this phrase gives us a picture of the completeness of the reconciliation that Christ accomplished for us. Here in verse 20, we see Christ's selfless act on the cross, which procured our reconciliation to God. But now in verse 21, Paul will tell us more about why we so desperately need this reconciliation. He begins by getting very personal with the believers at Colossae. Verse 21 says, And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds. The first two words of verse 21 are literally, and you. So here, Paul rather pointedly shifts the focus of attention directly onto the Colossians. The spotlight had been on Christ so far in this section but Paul abruptly swings it around to shine on the Colossians, as well as on each of us. The word formerly means before they put their faith in Christ. They were typical of all of us. Each of us was alienated from God, and it was a deliberate estrangement on our part. The Greek word alienated is apalatrio, and the tense indicates something that took place in the past which has ongoing or continuing effects. We were in a continuing state of alienation from God. But the news gets worse. Each of us was hostile in mind. Hostile is the Greek word ekthros, which means hostile or hating and opposing. The word mind, dianoia, denotes our deep thoughts, our ability to think and understand. So he's saying that our mindset was actively contrary to God and hating his standards and authority. Finally, not only was our standing and our thinking set against God, but these expressed themselves in our outward actions. We engaged in evil deeds. One commentator expressed it this way, the alienation of the mind showed itself by wicked works, and those works were the public evidence of the alienation. Here Paul is painting a very grim description of the status of unbelieving humanity. Even a Bible commentator who was writing in 1887 said this, that this is a severe indictment, a plain, rough, and as it is thought nowadays, a far too harsh description of human nature. Our forefathers, no doubt, were tempted to paint the depravity of human nature in very black colors, but I am very sure that we are tempted just in the opposite direction. 
It sounds too harsh and rude to press home the old-fashioned truth on cultured, respectable ladies and gentlemen. So if someone from the late 1880s could make such a comment, I can only imagine how offended people are today, well over a century later, at such a negative description of the state of humanity. But this is the truth of God's word concerning our condition apart from the reconciliation that Christ provides. In verse 22, Paul goes on to say, Yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. This verse forms a sharp contrast to the previous verse. It literally begins with, but now. We might want to translate this, but now, because of verse 20, because Christ reconciled us by his death on the cross, the spotlight is now back on Christ and what he accomplished for us. Here, Paul amplifies what he already said in verse 20. He has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death. We know the facts about the crucifixion of Christ from reading the first four books of the New Testament. In verse 20, Paul had expressed Jesus' death by using the words, the blood of his cross, which is his way of saying that Jesus physically died on that cross. Here in verse 22, Paul is more specific so that there will be no confusion about what happened. First of all, we see that Jesus had a fleshly body. He was fully human, although without sin. One Bible commentator has said, His death could only take place in a body like ours, of flesh. Paul then makes it clear that Jesus did, in fact, die. The Greek word for death is thanatos, which means the separation of the soul and the body, by which the life on earth is ended. So the death penalty was actually paid in full by Jesus when he died. Next, again in contrast to what Paul had said in the last verse about the abysmal condition of unsaved humanity, the reconciliation provided by Christ's death now allows him to present you before God. The Greek word present, paristomi, means to place beside or to bring close. And the word before is the Greek word katanopion, which means in the presence of or directly in front of something. Now, it would have been impossible, apart from the reconciliation that Christ accomplished on our behalf, for a sinful person to come into the presence of a holy God. But now Christ made this possible. Paul uses three important words to describe a believer's new position because of his reconciliation to God. He says holy, which is the Greek word hagias, that means consecrated or set apart unto God. Blameless is the word amomas, which means without blemish or fault. Finally, beyond reproach is the Greek word anenkletas which means that which cannot be called into account or accused. It's a legal term, which means that no judicial accusation can be brought against a person. These three things are available to anyone who puts their faith in Christ's work on our behalf. In the final verse of this section, we see that it starts with a conditional clause. 
there is a condition for gaining all of the benefits that Paul had just listed. By way of background, one theologian has this to say about our reconciliation. He says, God's provision of reconciliation is universal. Because of the death of Christ, the position of the world was changed. People were now able to be saved. But that alone saves no one. For the ministry of reconciliation must be faithfully discharged by proclaiming the gospel message. When an individual believes, then he receives the reconciliation God provided in Christ's death. The world has been reconciled, but people need to be reconciled. Universal reconciliation changes the position of the world from an unsavable condition to a savable one. Individual reconciliation through faith actually brings that reconciliation into the individual's life and changes the position of the individual from unsaved to saved. So in verse 23, we see, If, indeed, you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Verse 23 begins with, If, indeed, you continue in the faith. Now, in English, we have only one kind of conditional clause. If you do this, then you receive the result. But in the Greek language, there were several types or classes of conditional sentences. And here we have what is called a first-class conditional clause, which is often called a condition of fact. First-class conditional sentences are saying that If something is true, and we assume, for the sake of argument, that it is true, then the result will occur. So, this type of conditional clause puts the most positive spin on the sentence. Sometimes it can actually be translated by saying, since you are continuing in the faith. Their continuing in the faith is assumed to be true. Now, I'm not sure we can go as far as to translate the word since, but Paul certainly does put their conditional faithfulness in a very positive light. The word continue is the Greek verb epimeno, which is an intensified form of the word to continue or persevere. One language expert said that the preposition epi adds to the force of the linear action of the present tense meaning continue and then some. So the tense of the verb indicates a present continuous action. We might translate this, if you keep on continuing on in your faith. Paul then gives three descriptive terms that explain how they can accomplish this. First, he says, firmly established, which is the Greek word themeliao, This was a term from architecture or construction, which pictured laying a firm foundation for a building. It means to remain well-grounded or unwavering on the base of their faith in and knowledge of God. The perfect tense indicates the completed state of the foundation. There's nothing more or different that they require. The word steadfast is hedreos, which means firmly seated and unmovable. 
and then not moved away, uses the Greek word metakineo, which means not moved away and placed somewhere else. So they are to keep on continuing on in their faith by standing firm in the hope of the gospel they have heard. We saw earlier how they heard the gospel message from Epaphras and that they had already been well taught in the truths of the faith. Here, Paul is saying, stay put, stick to the truth. You need nothing more than what you already have. Paul's final point in this section will help him to transition into the next section of his letter to the Colossians, and it has to do with the gospel message. He says this gospel is being proclaimed in all creation under heaven. Previously in verse 6, Paul had said, The gospel was bearing fruit in all the world. So both there and here, Paul is using hyperbole to express how widely the message was being disseminated across the known world of his day. One Bible scholar has said, The message has been heralded abroad over the Roman Empire in a wider fashion than most people imagine. And then Paul states his final point. I, Paul, have been made a minister of this gospel message to the world. This is where we're going to pick up our study of this letter to the Colossians in the next section. Now, I recognize that we've covered a lot of ground in this session, and that means that there's probably going to be many more things for which we can give thanks to God in our prayers. Let's check our ideas about Jesus. Do we have an accurate image of him as fully human in the best possible way, as well as being fully God? One thing that should help us view Jesus as fully God is his role in the creation of the universe. Not only did he create everything, but he is actively holding it all together even now. Christ is greater than every created authority, either in heaven or on earth. He needs nothing else. There's nothing he lacks because he has permanently embodied all the fullness of deity as part of his nature. It was Christ's great plan and purpose that the church age would occur, which we're living in today, and that he would be the beginning and the head of the church. He led the way and provided our hope of following him in his resurrection from the dead with a glorified body. One of the richest truths is that Jesus provided a way for us to be reconciled to God when there was absolutely no other way. He voluntarily took the death penalty, which each of us rightly deserved. Now Christ can bring us into the presence of a holy God because he has made us holy and blameless and beyond reproach. As we rely on the indwelling strength of God, let us keep on continuing on in our faith, standing firm and unmovable on the basic truths which we've learned. As we did in the end of the last session, let's recall one of the great hymns of the faith and allow it to give force to our gratitude for all that Christ has done for us. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? No condemnation now, I dread. Jesus, and all in him, is mine. Alive in him, my living head, and clothed in righteousness divine. Bold I approach the eternal throne, and claim the crown through Christ my own. 
amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Amen.